You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 31 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, the 2nd of June, 2016. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hi, everyone. Jesse Carnes. Hello, everybody. And Will Forster. Hi, everybody. Will, first time podcast. Indeed. And the first time that we've had four people recording. We've got a new headset that we can plug into our mixing desk. And we've now got four people on, so hopefully that's going to uh, make it even more interesting than we already were. And for the listeners that I've spoken to who think that Harry and I are basically the same person because we have foreign accents and it's just one person and Asher, uh, now you're going to think there's just one person and Jesse because Will's joining us also (laughs) with a foreign accent. Indeed. This is the largest single gathering of English people in Costa Rica. (laughs) (laughs) Podcasting. Yeah. Very good. So we've been off air for a little while, myself and Rue and Will and quite a few of the other Surf Simply team went down to Peru and we ran a little coaching week down in Chicama there, which went pretty fun. And you went home, Jesse? Yes, I did. How was that? It was really great. It was good to see family, good to rest the shoulders. I didn't surf at all. And then I got to go up to a totally different atmosphere and go up to Manhattan, New York. And it uh, it was complete opposite of Costa Rica, but it was very fun. What what did you guys think of Peru? The pictures looked amazing. It looked really fun. I was so jealous when I was at home watching you guys. Were you were you particularly impressed by some of the in water A seven S Sony cinematography? I was most impressed by that. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed the trip. I mean, the the coaching was fantastic. The 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 wave at Chicama for those listeners that don't know it is a, a really long fairly gentle left-hander although it was the, the shape of it this year was much better than when we went down to check it out last year and I, I, I found I was surfing a shortboard pretty aggressively top to bottom. And, I was gonna say some of the photos looked not that gentle. No it was fun it was fun I actually I got a couple of cheeky little battles while we were out there. A really long hardly does it justice. <laughs> I mean it, like ridiculous you can you can it completely ch- you have to completely recalibrate what you're able to commit to a turn because you know you take off and you do three or four turns and you feel like all right this is just psychologically this is the end of the wave and then you you're like a hundred meters into a kilometer long wave yeah it was asher did say i think it was the first or the second day that we were there and he, he transported an incredibly heavy longboard uh, all the way down there but he then said that he got a nose ride that was so long that he had to step back just because his legs were cramping. <laughs> One thing that sort of surprised me about the wave is all the photos and video I'd seen beforehand, it kind of looks like, say, one long, fairly soft wave. Mm. But actually, the takeoff point at, uh, at the main rock was super steep, super fast section. Mm. And then it would turn into a slower, more like a longboarding wave. And then again, another super steep barreling section further down the beach. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of tricky because you'd have that fast, slow, fast kind of bit. And then when you were on the fast bits, you'd get caught a bit inside. And when you're on the slow bits, you'd see this huge long wall kind of coming, wrapping way out to sea towards you. And you'd think you were way too deep. And then it would just warp in and break way inside you. It kind of took me a couple of days just to get used to like which landmarks would tell me how far up or down the point I was. So I knew whether to paddle in or out. Yeah. I think I had my best session on Ash's 10 foot log, which I was really pleased he brought down because I really wanted to surf it down there. And I really didn't want to take it down myself. I have to say, Will Will deserves the Medal of Honor for this because when I finished the trip, I went off and checked out Machu Picchu and, and the Sacred Valley and all sorts of things like that. So 
Will kindly carried my boards as well as his all the way out there and then Asher decided he was going to do a trip so we did a whole nother shifty around and Will ended up bringing the 10 foot log all the way back home. How many, so board, how many boards did you end up bringing back? We, in total as a group we had 18. But how many did you have to cut back on your own? Well I had three short boards and then Asher's 9-7 log. Oh wow. Which oh was God. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. Yeah it was a a uh, bit of a relief when we got back to the airport. All the boards were there, accounted for, and no damage. What did oh, you think good. about driving through Peru? I thought it was interesting. Well, it's, <laughs> when, I, when I say interesting, I mean not very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out, Chikama is uh, up in the north. It's, it's really desert. Uh, it's very, very dry. It, it sort of looks, if you imagine the, the images that come back from the Mars rover, it, it kind of, in fact, you got some amazing shots well, when you ran up to the top of the hill mm. and just shooting out. It, it, it is very, very barren. But again, I then got the opposite because I went up into the, into the mountains inland. And it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's uh, cloud forest. Yeah, I mean, it's a really big country, isn't it? But uh, mm. when you are up north where Chikama is and you're driving on the way there, there's, it's like, kind of like driving on Mars. It's just desert. And then there's walls everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and Miguel, the guy who owned Chikama Surf Resort, was telling me that there's a law in Peru that every Peruvian has the right to own their own ha- home, their own bit of land, but you have to fulfill various criteria for the government to award this bit of land to you. And it seems like the most important one, apparently, is building walls on it. So the mafia, which uh, are hugely powerful in Peru, have commissioned the building of masses of walls over yeah. these huge tracts of land so that their shell corporations can then claim ownership of these bits of land. So it's just bizarre. You drive along, you can drive along for half an hour and there's just square walls with no roofs and nothing else there. It's really bizarre. It's like driving through sort of Mad Max country. Rue wanted to uh, create an Instagram account called Walls of Trujillo <laughs> yeah. because of all the varieties of walls. Well, and because of your enthusiasm for taking pictures of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that that could just be your niche, the walls of Peru. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the, uh, the local... Graffiti artists had quite a good canvas there. There was a lot of artwork on away from Trujillo Airport. Yeah, if you were into graffiti, I think northern Peru is definitely <laughs> yeah. where you want to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what else we should mention about Peru quickly is we should just thank Miguel and everyone at Chicama Surf Resort for taking such good care of us. We should. Um, they did a great job of looking after us, and if anyone else fancies uh, going and checking out the wave at Chicama, which I thoroughly recommend, uh, yeah, do go and stay at the Chicama Surf Resort because they... they really looked after us very well. And it's kind of optimum from beginning of May, end of September. So that's kind of the yeah. time of year you want to go there. And it's, and it's cool because you can surf it all the way through the tides and you have offshore winds blowing basically all day. All day. Yeah. And um, it said that the, the point wraps right into the prevailing winds. So it's kind of nice because rather than getting up and doing the early surf, you can just get up at like eight or nine o'clock, have a nice lazy breakfast and then kind of go for your nice offshore surf about 10 or 11. Yeah. Definitely a trip worth doing. Really recommend it. Especially if you're kind of at that stage where you want to spend just a lot more time on your feet. You know, if you're looking for heavy, short barreling waves, it's probably not the place. But if you want to just spend a lot of time on your feet and not be precious with your waves, which is, you know, that's why we went there, then, uh, yeah, it's a really good trip to do. Yeah. Also, we're going to be doing more trips there again in future as well. We're not going to be doing one for the rest of this year. But September 2017, I think we're probably going to be going down there for two or three weeks. So um, keep an eye on the Facebook pages and all that for that stuff. Yep. So quick little catch up before we go into the news. A couple of episodes ago, Rue, you mentioned the uh, surf club for the girls out in Bangladesh. 
And do you want to just bring us up to speed with that? Because I think we, we, uh, we as Surf Simply donated a little money in and, and you heard back from them the other day. We as Surf Simply got involved with it and quite a lot of our listeners did too based on the, the emails and messages that I've had. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just noticed that they, the, the Bangladesh Girls Surf Club fundraiser page, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, they just posted an update and uh, thanks to all of the donations, they now have a tutor, a Bengali tutor called Russell, who's teaching all the girls how to read and write and helping them with the school assignments, the ones who've got into school and the ones who haven't. They think they've got places for them at uh, one of the local schools so they can start after Ramadan, which is in the middle of July. So for listeners who don't know, this is a surf club in Bangladesh. We talked about it in the last episode a lot, and uh, it's a really cool GoFundMe campaign, which is basically aiming to give these eight girls at the moment who are in the surf club, hopefully they'll have more in future, um, the opportunity to, well, surf, of course, but also train as lifeguards and go to school rather than have to work or be married off to someone. And these girls are only uh, between 10 and 13 years old. So I think it's a really great cause. And uh, thank you, everyone, who's given money. And it will be fun to follow the club over the next few years and see how things develop. Yeah, just a very cool thing. Well done, listeners. You're awesome. Very cool. So big item that's been in the news while we've been away, slowly leaking its way into your social media feed, is Kelly's wave pool. Um, so, so first of all, the slow leak of all the the sort of sessions he invited various people from world tour surfing and, and things like that to go and surf the wave pool. And then last week, there was the announcement that the WSL have bought the majority share in the Kelly Slater Wave Company. And yeah, that, that all seems to be pretty exciting. I mean, that the wave looked amazing when they sent that first edit out um it still looks amazing yeah it looked really fun I, uh, patty smith wrote a really good article on the wsl website and she emphasized the the use of the wave pool for coaching and she yeah. talked about how it's going to allow them to place cameras and sensors to measure exactly what the board's doing which is you know something that we've talked about a lot the wsl has never really talked at all about doing any coaching before it's all just been about commercializing competition so that's the first time I've heard them mention it, which I think is really exciting. I think the interesting thing is they're obviously from an athlete. That, that, you know, she mentioned athlete development. Obviously, a lot of the, the guys at the WSL came in with Paul Speaker from a, a sort of American football background. And you think how heavy the, the sort of graphic interaction, you know, where, where, as soon as there's a play... And then while they're resetting, you're seeing the replays and then putting graphics all over the screen and showing where this person ran and that person ran and where the ball went. And, I, you know, the ability to do that with surfing within that environment, suddenly, I mean, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean, well, they can do a lot of that already. I, I really, you know, when, we know when they're showing replays of a lot of the waves, mm. I, I, just in regular competitions in the ocean, there's no reason why they couldn't pause them. And then the guys commentating have just got that ability with an iPad and one finger to start drawing lines and pointing at parts of the wave and hand placements. I think that's a no-brainer. It would, be, it would add so much to competition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the Surface Village article about the wave pool, they talked about how the wave actually can go through different sizes and for yep. different levels it's not just i mean we've only seen footage of the the barreling wave uh, with the pros on so far but uh, they obviously can do smaller you know more friendly waves to beginners as well yeah we- they had the uh, woman off the today show and she was that's the first time i've seen it when it's turned down a little bit mm-hmm. so i was quite interested to see that because i didn't know they could do it uh, i just paul speaker as well he also said in his interview for the today show that in the short term they're going to do events at the wave pool yeah. But then on the WSL website, he said, I'm just reading here, no firm plans have been made for inclusion of a man-on-man wave-based competition 
We will be evaluating all the possibilities in the coming months with the Commissioner's Office and the WSL athletes. So kind of mixed messages from him a little bit. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to the most is seeing like the surfers all competing basically on the same field, right? Surfing has so many varieties and so many different types of waves. It's going to be really cool for them to be able to compete together on the same wave. Yeah, so you can control that one variable. Exactly. I think the, the what I did here is that they have tentatively slated there's an event in July. This July? This July, not necessarily a WSL event, but but there is an event scheduled at that wave pool that no one is particularly talking about, but the rumours are circulating. I've heard online, I think, on one of the other podcasts that I listened to, they were talking about... Well, are we regurgitating other podcast material? We may be. We may, we're regurgitating second-hand rumours from other podcasts. <laughs> that is how fresh the news is here, ladies and gentlemen. You are on the cutting edge. <laughs> um, did you guys read any of the comments on the WSL website underneath the article? No, I bet there are some funny ones. Yeah, it was pretty. I mean, there was, there was all the stuff that you'd expect with people, um, you know, just polarising the whole thing with... Uh, Kelly Slater was compared to both the Messiah and Satan in the comment stream, <laughs> just to give you an idea. <laughs> anyway, but there was one comment that I thought was really interesting. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but um, he said, a majority stake, is this a typo? Why would a businessman sell his product company at this early stage? Why didn't he sell a, why didn't he sell a minority stake and, and keep control over the future of his, quote, lifelong dream that's been a 10-year development? Which I thought was really interesting. I mean, because Kelly's talked a lot about how this, you know, is, is, is his lifelong dream, or not maybe one of his lifelong dreams, and it's taken such a long time to develop it, and it's such a great avenue for the, to, to add to the sport. He's been very clear as well, I should add, that he, he doesn't think it's going to replace in water surfing, yeah. which is the straw man that a lot of the commenters have attributed to him. But still, it does seem odd if it's all that. Why is he selling the majority stake in it? It just seems like a very strange business move. Well, I, I mean, I wonder if it's one thing to have developed the technology and, and put all of that together, but then to actually build facilities around the world where people can come, you know, commercial facilities, that requires an awful lot of capital to come in. So he was always going to need investors, whether it was on a, a franchise model, you know, sort of like Wavegarden have done with Surf Snowdonia and with, with the park in, in Austin where they've franchised the technology out. But it strikes me, he, I mean, he must have put, huge amounts of money in over the last 10 years and millions of millions you think the number of people just just wages the number of people that have been on his staff developing this wave i mean i think if the wsl came out because if the wsl are buying into it you know that they're going to take it on and, and move it somewhere i've heard various rumors kelly's involved with the wsl financially anyway so who says he's losing any any particular say you know we, we don't know what the the negotiation was mm-hmm. yeah well that's true there's a lot of speculation in the comments stream as well but yeah i mean i think that as they're going to develop the wave pool technology as they build more of them franchising out the the mechanics of how it works yeah. seems like the most logical business model and I, yeah i just can't see i can't see why he would sell that majority stake because it, you you would still think that like the wave garden they would he he would hold on to the technology and then franchise it out sure to the wsl or whoever but but to, but to sell the core technology seems odd well except that he's uh, think back you remember when uh wave garden released that video and they had dane reynolds and gabriel medina and whatever tearing up their the, the thing and it was it was the hottest thing going and then they announced surf snowdonia was going to take place 
And then once Surf's Snowdonia opened, those following six months, it kept breaking. A lot of the reports that came out said the wave, you know what, it wasn't that great. We had, an, we had one of the first exclusive right here on the Surf Simply podcast from Sam Wackerly, didn't we? <laughs> we did indeed. But His response was pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's all right. But <laughs> do you know, so how much now, give it, again, given that you know, the guys at WaveGarden must have invested a lot of money over the, the five or ten years that they were developing that, like if they could have sold a majority, not the whole thing, but just a majority stake when it was the hottest product going, would that maybe have been better? Because in the last three, four years, they've got two projects off the ground. I mean, yeah, that's true. They, they've they've had no return on investment. If Kelly's got had the the option to, you know, maybe not get all his money back, but get a good chunk of his money back in one shot from the WSL, I, I don't know if I wouldn't take that. He's got his pool. Uh, one of the things we were speculating about on the show before was whether it would be used for the Olympics and. Uh, the Olympic Committee voted today. This is a segue. Do you like the way I did that? That's very smooth. Thanks. The Olympic Committee voted today that they will be having Olymp- the surfing in the 2020 Olympics in and Tokyo. And skateboarding. And skateboarding, which is cool, and, and makes a lot more sense as well. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but they definitely won't be doing it in a wave pool. The, they, they, they talked about how there's, a, uh, there's lots of you know, surf spots they can use in Japan, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the timing of the Olympics versus what the best time of year is for waves in Japan. I've never actually been over there. No, me neither. But it's... that's what I was going to ask earlier. Like, I wonder if this wave pool is going to bring or go into the Olympics because it is that sort of standardized wave. Yeah. Well, they've wondering. said it's not. So the other interesting thing about surfing going into the Olympics is... I mean, I don't know whether it's going into the Olympics forever or whether they just vote on it for one games. It is. They've, they've ch- slightly changed what's happening in, in all games going ahead. They're giving the host nation the option to bring in sports that are popular within that country to increase attendance and viewership and therefore sponsorship for the events okay that makes sense but the events that they choose have to be approved by the ioc the international olympic committee and so the thing that's just happened is that that japan put forward (laughs) the events that they wanted in there and the olympic committee have just approved the list of events that they wanted to add i wonder how you're going to qualify for the surfing olympics well, they said they're going to have 20 men and 20 women. Uh-huh. And all they said in the press release was that um, Kelly Slater, Gabrielle Medina and Julian Wilson have so far expressed an interest in competing. And may say maybe just expressing an interest is all that's required. I'll do it. <laughs> Are you expressing an interest formally? Yes, right now. Okay, there you go. If you're listening, IOC. <laughs> Will there be any restrictions on whether you have sponsorships? Because I think that's something within the Olympics, isn't it? Well, it, it used to be because they, they had the thing where you had to be an amateur. You couldn't be a professional athlete but i think they had to drop that when snowboarding came in because i mean sean white rides for the u.s every olympics that that goes and he's obviously one of the most highly paid athletes in the world so they've obviously reconsidered some of that so if you're interested listeners we were talking to david davis about his book about the life of duke kahanamoko a few episodes ago yeah waterman yeah waterman and he was talking about the history of uh, professionalism in the olympics and mm. how you know it used to be considered if you're a professional athlete you were sort of a lower tier and if you're an amateur you were like a, a gentleman athlete who didn't need to earn money and therefore did it for the love which i guess is the etymology of the word amateur yeah. 
Um, and that was sort of that back then was considered more highbrow, which I just thought was really interesting. But anyway, that's that was a really interesting interview talking with him. Are they going to have like one person from America, one person from England, one person from? My suspicion is what they because what they normally do is obviously there's uh, with a more popular sport like say swimming. Um, there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that would want to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they normally have is trials yeah. outside of the event. So I assume they're they're running a very very limited field for the surfing, cool. and there will be trial probably regional or or maybe just a trial beforehand, yeah. a, a big, you know, almost like those WQS events where they have 400 competitors in four-man heats and they just weed them down and so for some reason the the international olympic committee the ioc is communicating apparently exclusively with the isa not the wsl about competitive surfing and whether it should be in the olympics or not which seems a little bit odd it's sort of it, in my mind, it's kind of like the IOC came to the surf world and said, oh, who's in charge here? And, and the WSL was just in the back making some coffee. And the IOC were like, oh, we're in charge. Don't mind about them. You can talk to us. Yeah. Well, I think there is that standing of being an official governing body. You know, it, it, if you go to the UK and you want to do anything around sailing, you deal with the Royal Yachting Association because they are the recognized governing body for sailing and windsurfing and powerboat driving. And one way or another, the ISA, the International Surf Association, have, have got themselves to the stage where they are recognised as the international governing body for surfing. It's, it's funny, whenever you look at you know, the history of these governing bodies in countries, and even now with some developing sports in different countries, the governing body is usually like two or three people just sitting around having a beer going, well, we're going to be the governing body. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. That's the, like the only criteria. I mean, I guess if you rewind a couple of years to where the WSL was the ASP, and it's the Association of Surfing Professionals, and the only thing they were interested in was professionals that were competing in the contest. And so that obviously then is not what the Olympics is about. They want the governing body that represents, yeah, okay, competing professionals, but also the amateur and the coaches and you know, the, the entire yeah. process that is going on within, within the sport. Well, I mean, personally, I'd love to see the ISA and the WSL sort of get together and, um, you know, pool their resources. Although I think their agendas are probably different and that won't happen. Yeah, I suspect so. Um, on the subject of contests, just two quick roundups. WQS event at Karamas uh, took place. Karamas? Karamas. That was, that was very like, upper middle class of you. I think it's Karamas, isn't it? I don't know. I am upper middle class. How, how do you say it from the north of England? Karamas. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think surely rather than the northeast of England, we should probably ask how you say it from Bali. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's probably true. I'm pretty sure they say Karamas in Bali. Karamas. They like the short A's. So yeah, the, the, the WQS event took place there and Taj won it. Oh, go Taj. Go. Taj would say it Karamas. <laughs> <laughs> almost certainly. But yeah, and we've said it several occasions on this podcast. I mean, that was an amazing event when it took place as a, as a World Tour event. It would be great to see it back on. Um, and especially, we'll talk about Rio in a bit, but the men and the women competed in some pretty shocking conditions in Rio. Um, and, you know, counter that to what took place two weeks before in Bali, and it, it night and day. If you go on the WSL website, listeners, and you, um, I don't know, you really have to kind of dig deep to find the one article with a one-minute video highlights of the Kramis event. Yeah. And the waves they got were insane. Yeah. I mean, it would be... Aside from maybe Fiji and Chopu and Pipe, it would be hands down the best wave on tour. 
I mean, I think it was it was maybe in some ways better than some of those because you get the the barrel on takeoff and then out into that sort of turn section and then uh, air at the end. I mean, it, it really is. It, it there is every aspect of high performance surfing can be performed on that wave. It's just brilliant. I wonder why it is. We should get Dave Prodden back on the show and ask him. <laughs> the other contest news, I, I suppose, is the announcement that Costa Rica might get a WQS event. Yeah, that would be cool. It's about time. I mean, Costa Rica has such consistent waves, mm. I, although it doesn't. It, it rarely gets sort of world-class epic. There's surfable waves that are fun, you know, overhead and offshore for at least part of the day, pretty much every day. So it seems like such a logical place to have a surf contest, especially a QS one. Yeah, it's about time that they had one here. I think it's great. Yeah. They're talking about doing it in uh, Estorius. Oh, that is such a good wave, too. I haven't surfed down there. What's it like? Well, I think Estorius, Este is in front of a river mouth. And, I mean, the wave was just like the rest of Costa Rica. Very consistent. Lots of variety. It's Um, just a beach break, right? Beach break, yeah. But there's tons of other surf spots all in the area. But, like, from Hako down there, and then you keep going further south, there's just spot after spot. Yeah, exactly. So I think maybe they picked that place because there's a lot of places they could move around there, too. Yeah. And I think the thing I did find interesting is that they are holding the event from the 5th to the 9th of October which is about as smack bang in the middle of the wet season as they could possibly get. Yeah, yeah. that's a weird date to have it. Well, yeah, so we, we kind of have three seasons here in Costa Rica, listeners. We have the dry season, which is sort of you know, like the end of October through until about the end of April, when the surf's usually a bit smaller. We get a lot of very strong offshore days, and it's kind of like your classic, like think endless summer longboarding Costa Rica. It's that, that's kind of that time of year. And then we have, you know, now, which a lot of people call the green season, where it's usually sunny in the mornings and maybe a little overcast. And we usually get an hour of rain after lunch and we kind of get mm-hmm. bigger surf. So, you know, a lot of uh, people prefer to surf here that, this time of year. Um, and then we have October, just that month of October, which, well, it's, it's actually not really October. September, it's more like mid September to mid October, which is, uh, which can be really rainy. Although the last couple of years, sometimes you have sunshine and surf all day and pretty much everything's closed yeah. and there's no one here and it's just beautiful well maybe that's why they're doing it that time of year it says on the on the website it says 40,000 people are expected to arrive so maybe they're trying to push tourism in Costa Rica that time of year because it's dead yeah maybe I mean I, I don't know I've been here for 10 years now and I remember that it used to be like uh, the the northern hemisphere winter months were really busy and then the sort of the summer months were really quiet and now certainly in Osara it's pretty much the same all the way through the year but there still is that little dip just during like mid-September to mid-October yeah you're listening to the Surf Simply podcast okay we should move on there have been a couple of WCT contests while we've been away the men and the women competed in Rio John John Florence beat Jack Freestone in the final of the men's and Tyler Wright beat Sally Fitzgibbons in the final of the women's to take the overall ratings lead in the women's. Did you guys see any there? It was really hard for us to follow the event because we were all down in Peru and the, the one problem with being at the resort in Chicama is the internet is incredibly slow. Uh, so it's pretty hard to stream anything. Did you catch that any was, of it while that, you were at home? That was another r- r- way in which uh, it's a bit like being in the hab unit of the Martian with Matt Damon. <laughs> it was like about the same <laughs> lag time for internet and uh, countryside. I just saw a few clips, and I mostly watched the girls, not the guys. Um, but it looked really hard to surf. And, I mean, I'm so happy that Tyler Wright won. I think she deserves it. I hope she wins the world title. But I don't know. Yeah, I just saw a few clips, and it showed them surfing pretty well would you have preferred to watch them at Karamas yes for sure definitely it 
yeah, I mean, the surf for the men's and the women's, if you watch it, and the, 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 the girls particularly were getting... If you go through, you know, it's very easy to find the highest scoring rides. So I was sort of going through and, and anything that's above an eight point ride, they have a, a, a little click through and you can watch the video. So I was watching the eight and the nine point rides and it's like two turns in stormy shoulder high slop. Yeah. And that that was the best surfing that took place through the event. And it just I mean, the men got a little bit luckier because they sent them out when it was big, at least. Mm. And guys that were doing well with the guys that were boosting and for those of you that haven't seen do check out gabriel medina's ridiculous backflip air i did see that too yeah which scored him a perfect 10 and it 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 is insane it used to say on the advert the world's best surfers in the world's best waves did they still have that playing (laughs) or did it say the world's best surfers in the? i mean they they, i think they do have a problem don't they in that, that brazil is a huge market for surfing it is a huge market for the wsl it's what a quarter of the competitors in the world tour are from brazil but they still keep going back to rio and the conditions i mean they had to move the event because of pollution at the main event Uh, the the original event site was got washed away by a storm and there was serious worries about everyone getting ill um, there's always been security issues with people getting was it michelle Perez that got kidnapped a couple of years ago I didn't hear about that. Yeah, they bundled him into a, a car, and which, to be fair, Michelle Bariz is a massive unit. I would not be trying to stick him no into way. a van. No, because, they must have had one person go for each thigh. Yeah, um, but yeah, apparently... <laughs> no, I joke, obviously, it was awful. He, uh, yeah, well, he, they, they, they threw him into a van and set off driving, and he managed to, when it stopped at some lights, bust out the side door and I run away again. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. Um, well, he's just become was, even more legendary in hardcore in my head I now. I think that was last year or the year before? Well, I remember there was a warning. We were talking about it last year when they were running the event because there was lots of warnings about, you know, in, in the event PDF that they release, it was sort of like, you know, don't park too far, don't park here, don't drive through this part of town, yeah. don't surf the contest site more than you have to due to pollution concerns. I thought well, there was something else as well. I can't remember what it was. I think it was Carissa Moore and Nat Young, I think, were walking back to their hotel and saw someone get shot. Now, I feel like we're in danger of uh, taking one or two instances and starting to paint a rather negative image of Rio. I don't think that... Yeah, oh, obviously, yeah, I'm sure that Rio is delightful, but I think as a... The thing that surprises me is given how big Brazil's coastline is and how many options there are for waves, why do they keep going? You know, I I mean, I'm sure it's because it draws a big crowd and that's, Mm. you know, the, the main sponsor is their telecoms provider, isn't it? Oi? Is that, is oh, I, I think, don't know what I is. is I, th- I think it is. it's their telecoms provider. I think it's this, you know, it's like AT and T or, or Vodafone or something. But who was the wild card for that event? Because as far as question. I know, Oi don't have any sponsored riders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I'm not mm. sure actually. I'm not sure because I've kind of lost track of all the wild cards because there's so many injury replacements uh, at the moment. And he, Jack Freestone, in fact, I think was an injury replacement. Um, and got all the way through to the finals. Mm, that was his first CT final. Yeah, yeah. The I guess they're having the uh, Olympics there starting pretty soon. So, well, and the, there's lots of worries there with with you know the sailing events and the windsurfing events. They're super worried about. And, and again, we were talking to um, a good friend of ours who was staying with us in Peru, who's who's been doing business on quite a high level in Brazil for a long time, and it's just he has quite an intimate knowledge of uh, the financial structure there and also how how the parliament works. And we were talking to him about it. And I mean, it, it's almost a kind of a joke. It's, it's the 60% of the 
uh, I forget what the, their name for the parliament is, mm-hmm. but 60% of the country's politicians are under investigation for... Fraud. Uh, yeah, I haven't got the list in front of me, but I think it was for fraud, corruption charges, and some of them for homicide. Yeah. Like more than half of the country's parliament. It's just <laughs> outrageous. Yeah. So anyway, I, I feel like there's only a limited amount of time that they can continue to run in Rio. Well, because I always thought that they stopped running the G-Land Pro and then the Karamas Pro because of the political instability in yeah. Indonesia. I just sort of, I don't know for sure, but I assumed that was part That was of certainly it. the stated reason for it. And, and, uh, why it they, was, was it? and why they stopped running at Cloudbreak in Fiji for a while. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, we'll wait and see. But I feel like while those, all three of those were just tragic losses from the viewer's point of view, I feel like losing Rio. That said, I do, when we, we had Dave Proden on, <laughs> And he was talking about, you know, they, they, they do want, they want the best all-round surfer. They don't want the best surfer in perfect barreling waves. They want to see, all right, if, if you're going to win the world title, you've got to do well at Fiji and Pipe. But you know what? You've got to do well at France and Rio as well. Yeah. Well, for, yeah, but France can get amazing sometimes. Right. But my, the, in fact, the, point, the last few years, it's been pretty amazing. The point being, like, this week, you know, the surf on the beach has been shoulder to head high kind of stormy a little bit wobbly in fact it looked a lot like the waves in rio and so you know that 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 is the reality of our surfing i think in a, in a way i sort of see dave's point and the wsl's point that that you want the best surfer in the world to not just be able to go out and perform well in perfect conditions but to be able to go out in stormy conditions and no that's a really good point like just seeing surfers and in, in all different types of waves because you see them in a perfect wave like Pipeline or Cloudbreak. They make it look so easy, and it's actually kind of cool to see the top surfers struggling a little bit, you know? I don't think that stands up because they're going to, even at the really good events, they're going to have days when the waves are bad. I don't think that they need to specifically schedule in an event where they think the waves will probably be bad. <laughs> bad waves aren't that hard to find. Even I just like to spots. see them fall a little bit. <laughs> Well, anyway, from bad waves to good waves, uh, the contest then rolled round. The men's uh, event at Fiji starts later this week, and the women have just finished at Fiji. Joanne DeFay beat Carissa Moore in the final. Courtney Conalog took the lead overall because Tyler Wright got knocked out in round two. This was, I would say, without any question, the best women's event that I've ever watched, and take, that takes it from the event at Honolulu last year. And this was just stunning. Carissa Moore's 10. Was incredible. Was incredible. Laura Enova was charging the entire way through the event. Bethany Hamilton was surfing incredibly throughout the event. Oh, I saw some of the clips. of. I I didn't actually get to see hardly any of this event. But yeah, I just saw a couple of clips of Bethany Hamilton. And yeah, it was amazing. It was by far the best girls surf contest I've like in the history of women surfing for sure. Do, do, do you know? Just going back to Bethany Hamilton for a second. So Harry and I, listeners, have, have been having like hours and hours of debate about arm positions on cutbacks and on snaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, we've almost come to blows over it a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you know you watch Bethany Hamilton put so much torque and power into her surf. With is it her right arm? I'm just trying to think. It's, it's her, her back arm. It's a trailing arm it's that her she left doesn't arm have. that she's missing. Yeah. yeah, which is like really key on a good bottom turn too. Yeah. Well, uh, the thing I think is it, it is really cool to watch with her bottom turn is because obviously when when you go in her forehand bottom turn you would normally expect that left arm to be out 
and you know feeling for the water and she obviously doesn't have that option but what's really cool is to watch how she uses her hips because i think you lose that normally when you you watch athletes go in because that left arm on a forehand bottom turn for a goofy foot that left arm is so mobile throughout the whole thing because she doesn't have it she's really having to amplify what she does with her hips through that bottom turn and it's really interesting to watch how she puts the power and the torque through the bottom turn using her hips which, which actually leads on, I mean, just, just to fill you in, listeners, Harry and I were having this sort of discussion around the idea that upper body movement is important during turns, particularly off the top of the wave, but that the lower body and the hip movement has to come first. Mm. And one of the errors that a lot of surfers make is they put, and coaches actually, is that they put too much emphasis on the upper body movement, particularly the movement of the arms, when the lower body stuff isn't there. And surfers end up, especially sort of level three surfers and level four surfers, they're starting to try and perform turns by talking the board around with their upper body. And yeah, yeah watching Bethany Hamilton all do it with her lower body yeah. is awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. I guess the big thing really is Joanne DeFay has had a very good season and now has won as I say, won one of the most high-performance contests. And her first there is, one, too, right? There is still no sticker on her board. Yeah, is she, she's still unsponsored. Yeah. yeah, and Jeremy Flores is still paying all of her bills. A perfect content, contender for... Is she French or Australian? French. French. A f- perfect contender for the French Olympic team. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. If but, you have to be amateur, which probably you don't. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Due to the fact that it's not the 1970s. No. But, yeah, the... Um, just blows me away that that nobody has stepped i think gopro sponsor her yeah but, gopro does a lot of but stuff. at the same time gopro sponsor about half the athletes on tour and, and i don't think that they get a ton of money for it they get a, a lot of exposure but she surfed really consistent throughout the whole contest too and like she never had a bad heat mm. like every heat was so on point and so perfect that it, it, she deserved it, basically. Oh, that very much so. And, and she is now, like I say, it's not that this is a one-off event. She had a very good season. She's fifth in the world. And still nobody is reaching out to sponsor her. So what are the women's ratings looking like now? Uh, so Courtney Conlogue's in the lead over... Uh, Tyler Wright, second? Yeah, Tyler is second. Uh, Carissa, third. Um, Johanna Faye, fourth. Johanna Defay fourth. Uh-huh, up three places. There we go. Um, so yeah, fourth in the world, still unsponsored. So I, I didn't see it, as I say, but I, I've always thought that Joanne Defay is good, but just not in the same league as Carissa Courtney, Tyler, and possibly Steph Gilmore. I've kind of always feel like those four are way ahead. Even Sally Fitzgibbons, I wouldn't quite put up there. But um, but I don't know, how does Joanne Defay, how did she compare to those guys in this contest? Well, I think what's cool about this contest that's different from all the others is it isn't the same three girls that are in the top. It like Joanne DeFay, who usually she's been surfing good, but she gets put out around the quarterfinals. She now made her way up. Laura Evner made her way up into the quarterfinals. But it's cool to see not the normal girls who are usually getting first, second, third, yeah. not there. Like it's cool to see Bethany Hamilton. It's cool to see Joanne DeFay. That said, Carissa Moore was the on-form surfer. Uh, I mean, the, 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 I think it was her semi-final. She got ninety a 19-point heat total. She was throwing away nine-point rides. Yeah. Her surfing was astounding. And, and then when it came to the final, I think it was as much the waves and tactical decisions that, that, that lost it as, as the surfing. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, sports commentators would really like to say that Matt Wilkinson winning that first event sort of set a tone for the whole year being the underdog and he showed all the other underdogs that it doesn't have to be the same people winning all the time and that everyone can come through 
but I think that's probably just mistaking correlation with causation, and so I'm not going to say that. Maybe. I mean, certainly events that take place in these very pristine waves, so Fiji, Pipeline, uh, Chopu. Yeah, you tend to get the more predictable winners. Well, you get the more predictable winners, but you also you tend to see that there are surfers that can underperform throughout the rest of the year that can do very well. Uh, I, I mean, in recent years, Kelly is an amazing example in that he will you know, barely place through the whole rest of the year. And then you get to Fiji, you get to Pipe, you get to Chopes, and he's making it to the semis and the finals. Laura Enova is a, a great example. You know, she struggles to stay on tour every single year, but she's made it to the quarters or the semis every single year at Fiji. Yeah, I love watching Laura Enova charge in big waves. So just to, uh, to round out that, the next men's event is the Fiji Pro. That starts on June 5th. Hopefully that's going to be good. Uh, and actually, we didn't mention this before, but there was an incredible swell that came through just before the women's event. A uh, huge, huge double XL swell. And yeah, a lot... it, looked, it looked like the swell back from 2012. Yeah, some incredible rides going on. Uh, Aaron Gold got held down long enough that, that he needed resuscitation on, a, on the back of the jet ski, uh, which is a little bit unfortunate. But uh, Damien Hobgood's barrel was ridiculous. Yeah, we'll, we'll post a video of that in the show notes. It's really amazing. And actually, they've got another swell forecast for the 15th. Yes. And the, am I right that the waiting period ends on the 17th? Yeah. So fingers crossed, we might have a really big swell pushing at the end. And you and I, Harry, had a big... Uh, argument after the 2012 event about whether they should have run the event through those big like 20 foot days or the day I should say it was was like an afternoon and a morning wasn't it in Fiji so it'll be interesting now whether they will run it this time because everyone you know if if Dave Prodden is saying well we want to see surfers in all waves and that's why we run it in Rio when it's crap okay fine yeah but when Fiji's 20 foot I want to see them running it there as well yeah I think that, that they kind of have to don't they uh, so yeah, hopefully that that will be a good contest. Uh, the women now have a little break. They're not on until the 25th of July at the High Performance Huntington Beach <laughs> for the US Open. Yay! <laughs> I find it so hard to get excited about that contest. Oh, it's horrible. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, enjoy that one, listeners. Enjoy that one. <laughs> um, so just final bit of round out then uh, on the Fantasy Surfer League. We, we've got. Over 150 people playing Fantasy Surfer with us now. Oh, yeah? Where, where am I placing? I haven't checked it. Uh, you're, you're, you're very high up, honest. Um, <laughs> if so, I'm in the top 100 out of 150, I'm happy. Uh, Black Rock, you won the Rio event for the men's. Sub is still in the lead overall. Herve won the women's event at Rio. And I think it's Future IT Shapes won the Fiji event for the women's. And Luis Panda, you're in the lead on the women's event. So well done. So before we go to the What to Watch section, we've got a couple of emails uh, from, from a few listeners. We had an interesting one from Tony Blundell. Oh, do you want to read it, Will? Um, hi, guys. I've just started listening to the podcast, and I'm hooked. I've been very much enjoying going through the back catalogue and picking up on the surf tech. Traces on the future must have present list. I've been surfing for about 10 years and have recently moved with my wife and young son back to Newcastle, Australia to enjoy the beaches and get as much surfing in as a new dad can. Congratulations. I was wondering if, I ha- if you have any advice regarding surf journals or diaries, in particular any good apps for phones. This could be a good way to review a session, keep an eye on what I felt best and which spots work best for particular conditions. It, it could also be a way of reviewing progress and setting goals. Do you find this approach useful for your students? Do you use some something similar do you have an app you would recommend thanks guys keep up the good work and enjoy living the dream 
Tony Blunden. I think there is a huge potential in logging your experiences, you know, if you're surfing, particularly if you're surfing somewhere regularly, you know, just even just noting down what was the forecast that day and what were the conditions like, you know, starting to get wide, like which swell directions work best, which periods work best. Some beaches work better on short period swells. Some of them work better on long period swells and just keeping track of that can be really helpful. Um, being... I think actually as well, we, what we all tend to do is remember good sessions and forget bad sessions yes or when we start thinking that a particular surf forecasting site is good or is bad or the the swell is always good on an incoming tide like the whole cherry picking confirmation bias cognitive biases kick in really really strong and you'll hear people swear that you know sets are always seven waves on this swell direction or that the waves are always better when the tide's pushing in or and there's absolutely no basis to it at all it's just confirmation bias absolutely and so you know the the more data you have logged the better that goes and i think the same is true not just with surf reports but with the equipment you're using with the 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 time of day that you surf you know I, i i have idly kept track of my surfs um i use trace which you mentioned before fairly regularly and i have noticed that I tend to have better surfs. Like I would rate my surf as better and more enjoyable if I surf in the evening rather than in the morning. I love going out and surfing in the morning, but I don't think I surf very well early in the morning. So to answer that question, there are there's a couple. There's uh, iSurfer. There is another app called Surfer. So uh, spelt uh, S-U-R-F-R. Um, have you noticed that a lot of it's like a fashion in names in Silicon Valley is just to leave out a few vowels? Yeah, it seems a bit silly somehow. But anyway, yeah, I, I like vowels. <laughs> they get you from one it, consonant uh, to the other really nicely. It seems a bit silly. <laughs> <laughs> Good radio joke. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and there's another one called Surf Journal, and and all of those try to log as much information as 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 possible. I think. From what I looked at, none of them seem to be that complete in terms of how well they collate all the different bits of information. And then, uh, as with everything, uh, you know, with any any bit of science, what you want is lots and lots and lots of data points that you can then extrapolate and try and um, pull some information from. And And I think even more than that, the way that you instinctively will want to use that data is to look at all the data you've gathered, whether you're measuring, you know, how big were the waves in relation to the swell forecast. So you're trying mm-hmm. to see how accurate a site was or in relation to the tides, the swell direction, or how well you feel you surfed on different boards or with different fins in, whatever it is that you're looking at. I, uh, I would try and just gather a specific data stream on one thing, you know, so you just are looking at one uh, question rather than just all of it as a mishmash because then you're bound to find patterns just because it's noise in the data that don't really mean anything and and the other thing is once you've gathered that data then ask yourself a question right are do i surf faster or catch more waves on this board or with these fins and then gather more data but now what you're trying to do is disprove that idea because you're always going to find uh data that supports your idea so the, the trick is to try and disprove your idea, not just look for data that tells you what you already thought was true. Good life lesson in there as well, Indeed. I think, listeners. Yeah, uh, when we were in Peru, um, I attached the trace to my board and I used it as a bit of a coaching, self-coaching tool, really, because I'm working on my backhand bottom turn right now. At the beginning of our trip, the angle of which my board was on rail was only 15%, and comparing it with the data that Harry already had from previous, from an earlier session at Peru, his was 
45 degrees on rail. And what, so and yours was at 15 Mine degrees. was only 15 degrees, yep. So, I could, so it was clear, obviously, from the data that, that I could be much harder on rail. And because Chikama is such a, a mechanical wave and so, so reliable in that sense, I was able to then do bottom turn, backhand bottom turn drills and I could see from the data that I was getting at the end of the session that actually the drills were working. I was getting more on, more on uh, rail. And do you, you feel like that's a really motivating thing as well? I think it's, yeah, I think it's motivating, but it's also it, it's nice to see the, the progress it, you know, in numbers. Yeah, because um, I, I feel like that's one thing when we're doing a lot of level three and four coaching and someone is working on their cutbacks, for instance, you know, back in years gone by, before we really quantified those type of things more specifically, they used to say, oh, I'm working on my cutbacks. And then two years later, they're like, well, I'm working on my cutbacks. And then, you know, you look at Kelly Slater, he's working on his cutbacks a lot of the time as well. Mm. So I, being able to say, oh, well, I'm tr- what, you know, what we first started doing at Surf Simply was saying, well, I'm trying to get my cut back. So it's, I'm turning from four o'clock to seven o'clock. And then now I'm trying to get it from 3.30 around to eight o'clock. So just increasing those angles incrementally. And the, the, better, the higher level you surf at, the, the smaller those increments become and the more important they become as well. Uh, and I think that's really the, the power of trace, particularly when you're not working on catching waves, but you're working on the turns that you're doing on it. Yeah. Um, one thing we didn't talk about in this show, actually, which I won't get into now because we're running out of time, but the Samsung Galaxy surfboard. Oh, yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know if anyone's seen that. Well, I guess we should post a little uh, advert for that. I mean, it's obviously a prototype that's just really designed to get attention for Galaxy and try and yeah. ingratiate them to the surfing community a little bit. I posted about it on our surfing page on Facebook, and there was a lot of angry haters on there, which, you know, you'd expect. But it is really interesting how rather than just the trace on the middle of the board, you could have a whole board with sensors all the way around the rails and get much more precise information. And while... You know, in the advert, it talks about having tweets pop up on the middle of the board, like, go Medina, like he's not going to go. And then someone tweets it at him. And he's like, oh, I'm going to serve hard now that I've just been <laughs> tweeted at. But, you know, being a, you know, we spend a lot of time with duct tape writing drills for people to have right in front of them so that they know what to focus on at any given time. Uh, I mean, you were coaching Troy this morning and it was a big old paddle out. His shoulders were a bit sore and he didn't really want to have to come in for that feedback to go back out again. It would have been cool to have that on the front of the board, wouldn't it? No, for sure. Definitely. I and think- that immediate feedback as well. Yeah. So I could, you know, I could have seen it that after that wave. Okay, I was only on rail t- 20 degrees that time. Okay, I need to do it differently. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because then it's still fresh in your mind how it felt when you get that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so this is an email from Jasper in Cornwall, which is our home country, if anyone wondered. Uh, I just wanted to ask, how do professional longboards compare to a standardish nine-foot log you would buy out of the shop? A friend of mine told me they are skinnier and thinner and therefore lighter, and this is why people like Ben Skinner can throw them around so much and even get small airs. What dimensions are they? Is this true, or is this just a myth, and it's simply the ability that separates us and them? Love the podcasts. Keep it up. Over to Harry. The simple answer is yes and more so. Um, the, the boards will be narrower, they'll be thinner. Uh, uh, the big difference is they're massively rockered, uh, particularly compared to a, a log, which within long boards, logs are generally pretty flat uh, and pretty heavily glassed, and they're designed to just glide and go straight very, very nicely. Uh, performance long boards are incredibly rockered uh, to the point where they're fairly useless for any, any normal surfing. So why does the extra rocker of a performance longboard prevent you from being able to nose ride it? 
it doesn't prevent you from being able to nose ride it, but it does mean that you know if you walk all the way to the front on a, a relatively flat board, you should nevertheless have the entire rail line length of the longboard engaged in the wave face and it's a long straight rail that's drawing you out along the wave whereas when you walk to the nose on a performance board you have this banana shaped rocker that that is effectively trying to pull the board back up the wave face so it's a, it's a, it's just a different dynamic but it then means that when you walk back onto the tail you can pivot the board around that 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 very exaggerated rocker allows you to just pivot the board around because when you're trying to do a carving turn on a board that's got very little rocker in it you tend to end up catching that rail in the water. It's pretty difficult. Yeah. I tell you what was nice when we were down in Peru and I was, I was riding Ash's log, and I haven't spent a lot of time riding a very uh, traditional uh, log, kind of longboard, you know, with that really straight rail line. Yeah. And I got up to the nose on one of them, and it was one of the longest nose rides I've ever done. And actually, Will was like down the end of the wave, and I was like, there on the nose, and I was like, okay, I'm going to fall off. I'm still there. I'm still there. Then I saw Will could see me, and I was like, yes, yeah, someone's watching. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I was, but every second I was just waiting for that feeling of the fins at the back to release and then the whole board to kind of spin around and do a little 360. Yeah. And with that log and that straight rail line, it's amazing how you can be in a really critical part of the wave and it just grips so well. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you great, know, Asher's board has no rocker on it at all. I mean, just just to give an example, uh, you were asking Jasper about dimensions, and just to put it into perspective, you know, a, a fairly standard longboard, uh, as an example, the nine twos that we have at the resort are about twenty three inches wide and just over three inches thick, and that gives them just under eighty liters of volume. A performance longboard is only 22 inches wide and only two and a half inches thick and is only 60 litres in volume. So you're dropping 20 litres going from a, a, a fairly standard uh, longboard down to a, a performance longboard. So it's the same length and about 75% the volume. Yeah, yeah. So much, much lower volume, much, much lighter. You're also, again, you know, if someone's competing, they're going to put half the glass on. Uh, you know, a, a heavily glassed Asher's longboard, for example, has really heavy glass. It's, de- it's deliberately designed to be sort of five, six pounds heavier than it sh- than it needed to be. Uh, whereas a, a performance board's going to be glassed four ounce on top, four ounce on the bottom, and if if you snap it, you snap it. And you usually do. And you usually do. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that answers your question, Jasper. Um, if anybody else does have questions, please do email us podcast at surfsimply.com and we will do our best to reply to you. Right, what to watch? We've been away a while, so these are piled up a little bit. Uh, can I just say I really enjoyed the last flight to Agadir, which yes. was um, our sort of a it's kind of a friend of a friend, Harrison Roach. Yeah, we got a, There's a few connections we have between Deus and Surf Simply. There's a few sort of friends yeah. and friends and people working for both companies. And uh, I'm hoping Harrison will get over here sometime and we can, we can hang out with him because he's such a great surfer. But I love as well a lot of the stuff that comes out of Deus, just the cinematography is really beautiful. And he always picks just awesome soundtracks. He has, uh, you know, Fela Kuti. And I can't remember what the soundtrack is in this one, but it's, it's some really beautiful old soul. And they're surfing yeah. this huge right-hand point break with crazy strong offshore winds. Yeah. And he's riding this sort of seven foot six kind of like it's, it's not really like a single fin i think it's more like a seven six just really old-fashioned thruster yeah 
And uh, it's just like beautiful. You could just watch it on loop over and over again. So if you're going to watch one of the What to Watch movies, that's definitely my pick. Yeah, I think so. And actually on the subject of Deus, they have a new movie coming out and they released the trailer about a week ago. It's called South to Cyan, uh, which if I've had too much to dream last night is anything to go by should be a fantastic film. That's still the best name of any surf movie ever. Yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, anything caught your eye, Will? Uh, I liked the Finfinite video. Yes. A lot of Ryan Birch in there. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful stuff. That movie that was, it was some of the outtakes or the cutting room floor edit type thing from Psychic Migrations, and it was Ryan Birch surfing his 20. It was called From the Cutting Room Floor. Yeah, I think that's what it was. We'll have to dig it out and add it to the uh, show notes as well, because yeah. that was cool. Anything cool you are, Jesse? The Sia video, because Sia makes really good bikinis for surfer girls. Um, it's really pretty. Um, and I have heard Asher around the office saying Mason Ho's new little video. Yeah, Mason Ho's got a new video series called License to Chill. Um, <laughs> You've got to love Mason Ho. I love yes. him. <laughs> um, I think there's three episodes up so far, so I'll, I'll, put a, I'll put one of them in the show notes and I'll put a link through to the series. Uh, really, really fun. Uh, there was one in Bali, the, the new one, I think, which I haven't watched yet, is Waimea. Yeah, just Mason Ho bimbling around and having a lot of fun doing it. License to chill. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Okay, uh, that's all we've got time for this week, ladies and gents. I hope you have enjoyed the show. I hope you will join us next time. But from all of us here, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. 